to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message. Hey, people. Welcome back from Fall Retreat. Hope you guys came back somewhat refreshed. I do need to apologize. If you haven't checked your email, sorry about the bed bugs that were there. They should be fine. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. There's no bed bugs at Fall Retreat. Everybody just freaked out for a second. Just a bad little joke, that's all. Hey, but you know, I, well, I got to thinking, how many of you guys, honestly, how many would you, how many of you would have gone to Fall Retreat if we made it a requirement that you had to go on a date with somebody while you were at Fall Retreat? Apparently zero. Now think about it, if you had to go on a date down at Fall Retreat, would you do it? What would you do? Some people say yes. Some people say no. <laughs> would you be excited? Would you be fearful? Maybe a little bit of both. Well, you know what? It turns out this was an actual homework assignment. A professor at Boston College University assigned her students this one weekend. Her students had to go on a date that weekend. And they were mortified. They were terrified. One student, I'm pretty sure, said it the best. Why was it so terrifying? Well, they said it's because we don't know how to connect relationally. Don't know how to connect relationally. Let's take this assignment one step further. False assignment, of course. What if a professor told you that this weekend you had to hook up with somebody? No relationship. No strings attached. Just hook up and be done with it. I'm not sure about everybody in this room, but according to the most up-to-date research that we have, more and more college students w would actually have no problem with this at all. They would rather hook up with somebody, no strings attached, and be done than actually go on a date with someone where you have to sit across from them and connect relationally. One college student uh, put it this way in, a, in an article in The Atlantic. It said, we hook up because we have no social skills. And we have no social skills because we hook up. We're continuing our series here at Veritas uh, on uncovering these big little lies that are found in our culture today. And tonight's big little lie is that you have to hook up in college. You have to hook up in college. And by hook up, I mean any and all forms of sexual experimentation, no matter your relationship to the other person. So you could be hooking up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You could be hooking up with someone that you want to be your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You could be hooking up with someone that you've never met and you could care less if they become your girlfriend or boyfriend. Hooking up applies to what happens at first base, second base, third base, fourth base, and any other bases that are out there, all right? Let's be honest. Nobody wants a 34-year-old guy to, to go into the details about that, all right? I think we all get it, okay? So I'll spare us some of the details and we'll move on. Uh, but all jokes aside, though, 
Whenever we talk about sex and sexuality, we've got to acknowledge the diversity of places of, of people where we are as a group here in this room tonight, as well as the people that we're interacting with in and around campus. You see, we bring a broad and diverse range of experiences and vantage points to this topic, even right here in this room. You see, some people in here, they want to date, and they want to get married one day. There's some people in here who don't want to date and who don't want to get married one day. There's some people in here who feel like they can't date anybody and they can't get married one day. There's some people in here who are hooking up with somebody they don't consider to be their significant other, nor do they really care. Well, there's some people in here who are hooking up with somebody that they want to be, somebody that you want to be your significant other. There's some of us in here who are hooking up with our significant other. There's some of us in here who are hooking up with someone other than our significant other, and we haven't told them yet. Some of us in here are recovering from infidelity in a relationship. Some of us in here are victims of sexual abuse. Some of us might even be the perpetrators of that sexual abuse. Some of us in here are sexual minorities in that we experience our sexuality different from the majority. And some of us just downright view our sexuality as a curse. It feels tainted. It's something that we don't want it feels like it's a space where God is not. And so given the diversity of these experiences and these, advantage, these vantage points, how do, we, how do we grapple with a topic like this? Where do we even begin? Right? Wouldn't it be just easier just to gloss over it, just to turn a blind eye, just to sweep it all under the rug and pretend that it's all going to be okay, let people work things out for themselves, to be totally honest and vulnerable for a second? Yes, it would be a lot easier. And I won't lie, uh, I've told some of you this, uh, this sermon has been weighing on me uh, pretty heavily for the last couple of weeks. I don't want any pity, it's just the reality. As I've learned and I've studied and I've talked and I've seen just the weight of this culture that a lot of you guys are living in, this lie that says you have to hook up in college, that's hard, that's difficult. I, I can't imagine what that is like for some of you, for most of us here. It's hard. And yet I, I, I can't not speak about it. You know why? Because Jesus has something to say. Jesus has something to say about hooking up. He has something to say about sex and our sexuality, and so we have to talk about it. But there's somebody else who's talking about it. There's somebody else out there who is committed to bringing confusion and shame and hopelessness to this topic. You might remember from a couple weeks ago that Satan is the one who's also talking. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's committed to sowing discord and misinformation in all sorts of ways that confuses us as to what God wants in this area. That big little lie that Satan is promoting, the big little lie that he is funding, the campaign that he is creating and shouting from the rooftops is that you have to hook up in college. Of course, this isn't breaking news to anybody, right? This has been the big little lie alive and well on college campuses for decades now. But it's precisely because this lie is so common and so ingrained in college culture that we need to examine it, that we need to talk about it. In her book uh, called American Hookup, author Lisa Wade, she defines this term and uses this term hookup culture. This is what she says. Hookup culture is an occupying force, coercive and omnipresent. For those who love it, it's all sunshine, but it isn't for everyone else. Deep in the fog, students often feel dreary, confused, and helpless. Many behave in ways they don't like, hurt other people unwillingly, and consent to sexual activity 
they don't desire. Many behave in ways they don't like, hurt other people unwillingly, consent to sexual activity they don't desire. I know for a fact there are some of us in this room to whom these phrases absolutely apply right now. Many of us know in our heads, right, that we don't need to hook up in college. Of course I don't need that. And many of us in our best moments, we realize, no, we actually don't really want to hook up. That's not really what we want. We know God's vision for sex, and we want to be faithful with that. We want to pursue it. But then we get blinded by the dense fog that is hookup culture. We get lost in it. We make a bad choice. And then we make a few more bad choices, and pretty soon those bad choices start to become a destructive pattern, and pretty soon we feel helpless to stop that pattern, and we start believing that we have to hook up in college because, well, that's just what you do. And if you don't hook up in college, well, then you're somehow missing out. You're somehow less of a person. I think for many of us in this room, Romans 7 captures that tension that we feel living in and among hookup culture here at college. The Apostle Paul writes this, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. We might say hookup culture. It's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. This is what I really, really want. But I see another law at work in me. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. We might say the law of hookup culture within me. What a wretched person I am. But thankfully... Thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves in the fog of hookup culture, where that lie that you have to hook up in college is coming through every speaker on every channel, loud and clear, the moment you wake up, the moment you go to bed. He doesn't leave us by ourselves. No, he provides us hope. Before we see how he provides us hope, though, we need to become a little more familiar with the intricacies of this lie. So what I want to do is I want to name and talk about and interact with what I think are three main false beliefs that kind of undergird, that kind of support this lie. And I think that these three false beliefs, they contribute to the power and the influence of this hookup culture on campus. They're under the radar. They're sort of the unwritten rules that maybe are explicit, but a lot of times go unspoken. And yet these beliefs, they're so tempting. They're so easy to buy into. It's the natural default that if we're not careful, we'll start buying into. Here's the first. The first false belief is that hooking up is for gaining social status. Hooking up is for gaining social status. And and this is true, not just for men, but also for women. A few college students interviewed in in that book, American Hookup, they, they put it this way. Men said this, in our room, hooking up is a commodity, which, like gold, increases a man's social status. Another student said, when I've just got laid, the first thing I think about is that I can't wait to tell my crew who I just did. Like I say to myself, oh my God, they're not going to believe who I just did. Another man, it's, it's like the girl you hook up with. They're like a way of showing off to the other guys. I mean, you tell your friends you hooked up with this girl and they're like, whoa, dude, you're a stud. So I'm into this girl because my guy friends think she's so hot and now they think more of me because of it. Women believe hooking up is for gaining social status, too. Among the women that, that, this, that Wade studied, here's what some said. One woman said, the ultimate goal in hookup culture isn't just to hook up, it's to hook up with the right person. Well, more specifically, a hot person. It's not a social tragedy to hook up with an average-looking guy, but hooking up with someone attractive is a social asset for sure. It raises your standing in the hierarchy of potential partners. It makes you more attractive. 
Another woman explained the whole point of hookups is to get some and then be able to point the person out to your friends and be like, yeah, that guy, right, right over there, the hot one, I got that. So hooking up is about using someone to get what you want. It's a means to an end, to gain influence, to gain power, to gain respect among your peers for gaining social status. Now, even if we haven't gone to these extremes, and maybe some of us have, but even if we haven't gone to those extremes, perhaps we're tempted to believe in this idea in a little more subtle ways, right? Maybe we've wanted the attention of somebody only because it's going to boost our own social status. We found out they're interested in us, and they're not bad looking, and that's going to make me look good. Right? Maybe we wanted to go on a date with somebody, not so much because we're interested in that person, but because we know it's going to boost our own reputation. We know it's maybe going to make the rest of the people a little envious, a little jealous, because I'm going on a date with them. So hooking up is to gain social status. Another false belief that we need to examine and that is common is hooking up is no big deal. Hooking up's no big deal. More and more studies and data and interviews with college students that are revealing that they think emotionless sex is not only possible, but that it's actually typical. They think that emotionless sex is just how sex is supposed to be. Julie, student at the University of Florida, said it this way, it's always nice to have a clean, emotionless hookup. Do you believe that? I mean, in an honest moment. Do you think that's true? In one of the more sad, to be honest, sad sections of the book, waves, she describes the behavior of many college students right after hookup. So these, these students who were doing the study, they would journal about their experiences, and this is what would happen the moment after they hooked up. Once the hookup is over, the rule is to go from hot to cold. To show any sort of love or kindness or genuine feelings toward the other person is the worst thing you could do. One student in Iowa said it this way, hookup buddies should never talk about emotions or anything too personal. You can never show your two feelings and insecurities to your partner because it's a contest to see who cares less. Some of us know exactly what this is like because we've tried to play this game before. We've been there. In, in a desperate attempt to maintain a reputation, we force ourselves to be detached, force ourselves to show no emotion, force ourselves to play it cool. We tell ourselves to do that. Look, it's no big deal. It's just hooking up. Others of us, though, if that's not us, we, we might believe this lie in, in other ways. You know, if we have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, we can buy into the lie that hooking up is no big deal because we love each other. We can buy into the lie that hooking up is no big deal because we're going to start dating soon anyway. We're on the way there. We can buy into this lie because, look, we're not actually having sex. We're doing everything else, but it's not sex, so it's not that big of a deal. So hooking up is no big deal. Final one, I, I just mentioned it a second ago. Hooking up is needed to start and further a relationship. Hooking up is needed to start and further a relationship. It's needed to start a relationship. Sociologist Rachel Callis, she found that in her students or in her studies among college students, dates are happening between them. So college students are going on dates, but they always start after the hookups have occurred. Remember that student at the beginning of the, the very beginning of the talk? They said, we hook up because we have no social skills. We have no social skills because we hook up. Well, that's it. Another student immersed in this culture put it this way. They said, if you don't want to hook up before getting into a relationship, good luck finding a relationship. Sad but true. Another student said, said it a little more bluntly, if you don't hook up before starting a relationship, then you're probably screwed. This is college. Get real. 
Now, again, I know that's an extreme, right? And it's probably uh, an opinion that is perhaps a minority of what people actually believe, but I think, I think it captures something true. So it's needed to start a relationship. But my guess is more of us tend to believe the second one. It's hookup is needed to further a relationship. You know, we think once we've gone on a few dates, once we become Facebook official, once we've gotten to our six-month or our three-month or our one-month, once we've shared our stories, our pasts, then we can start hooking up. I mean, it's what you do, right? The fog of hookup culture is confusing many of us to think that once we become vulnerable, once we put ourselves out there emotionally, spiritually, once we've connected in a deep way, well, then we have to hook up. That's just the next step. We've somehow earned the right to do that. And maybe at this point, you're a little confused. You might even be scoffing a little bit because that's all that you know how to do. That's all you've experienced. You might be asking yourself, Austin, what, what else is there? Is there even another way? Let's go just a little bit of a different direction here and ask this question. Is this lie that you have to hook up in college, is it actually delivering on its promises? Uh, This lie that you have to hook up in college, is it actually making us happier, more secure in ourselves, more joyful, more fulfilled, more satisfied? I recently heard a, a pastor, he put it this way in his sermon. He said, the hookup culture promises that the more you hook up, the better hookups you'll have and the better relationships you'll have. The more you hook up, the better hookups will be and the better relationships that you'll have. Well, is that right? That's a super important question because if the answer is no, if those things are not true, then it's not crazy to reject that lie. If those promises are false and they're not delivering on it, well, then it actually makes sense. It's the healthy, the smart, the wise choice to say no to this lie. If this lie that you have to hook up in college is making our lives more miserable, then why would we say yes to pain, to heartache, to insecurity when potentially there's something else out there that's better, that's more joyful, that provides a better and more satisfying life? So let's evaluate. First, if you have more hookups, are the hookups going to be better? Well, it's hard to really uh, get an accurate picture of this, and there's just one, I just heard one story that I think really illustrates the point well. In 2015, Vanity Fair published an article called Tinder and the Dating Apocalypse. One woman interviewed in the story said, universally, hookups could not exist without alcohol because for the most part, they were too uncomfortable to pair off with men they didn't know unless they were totally drunk. She said her last sexual encounter required half a bottle of bourbon. She said, I've never had sober sex with a new partner, and I wasn't about to start with a guy I barely knew. Do more hookups equal better hookups? Well, that that doesn't seem to be the case. In fact, the opposite seems to be true. It seems like everything that's showing is the more hookups you have, the less pleasurable they'll be. It's as if hooking up is like some sort of cold. Right? If you get a cold, you can't really taste anything, smell anything. Your senses are kind of dull. Well, it's the same thing with hookups. The more we hook up, they dull the experience, the pleasures that are supposed to be connected with sex. And when you really boil it down, it doesn't look like this delight is delivering on, that, delivering on that promise. The more hookups you have, the better there be. No. What about that second one? The more you hook up, the more fulfilling your relationships will be. Remember that student from Florida, Jane? She said, it's always nice to have a clean, emotionless hookup. Is that right, really? There's a tweet a couple years ago said this. 
Yeah, hooking up's cool, but have you ever had someone actually love you back as much as you love them? Me either. It's okay, sweetie. That tweet was liked 76,000 times. Another man from that Vanity Fair article said that using Tinder is like ordering Grubhub, only you're ordering a person. Remember, remember how people were treating each other after, after hooking up? That contest to see who could care less? At first, a lot of students in the hookup culture tended to brush it off. They started playing the game. They realized, okay, this is just how it has to be. That's fine. But over time, as it happened again and again and again and again, it started to take a toll. They told the, the story of one of the more sexually active students. Uh, they called, she called herself an enthusiast, and she jumped right into the hookup culture. She would have regular hookups over and over again, and at first she was having the time of her life. She said plenty of men were willing to sleep with her, but then she began to notice that nobody wanted to be her friend. Nobody wanted to be her friend. After hooking up, they acted like she didn't even exist. They, in fact, avoided her in public more than once. She dealt with all of it at first. She put on a good face. She figured this is just what has to happen. But after a while, it became too much for her. This is what she wrote in her journal. These men, they only want to use me and then be done. I'm sick and tired of this. I am more than my body. I'm a human being. Screw my life. It's pathetic. I'm pathetic. This isn't what God intended for us. This is not what God intended for us. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, in the second chapter, God has just created a suitable companion for Adam. Her name's Eve. This is what Adam says upon seeing her. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Adam says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. We learn some, some things about God's vision for sex in these verses. Here's the first thing. Sex is good. Sex is good. Many of us have grown up with, or maybe been taught, a, a negative caricature of the Bible's view of sex, that God is anti-sex, that he's against sex, that sex is corrupt, that it's dirty, that it's demeaning, that it's shameful. But that could not be further from the truth. You see, God isn't anti-sex, he's pro-sex because God created sex. In fact, God didn't just create it, he commands it. 1 Corinthians 7, it's a, a book in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul, says this, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Notice this is both to husbands and wives. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. See, Paul is saying that part of the marital duty of a, both a husband and a wife is to have sex regularly. Now, I know you might hear that and you might not believe it. Maybe your mind tells you it's true, but your, everything about your experience says, no way, that can't be true. You know, if we've been abused in some way, it's, it's very easy to believe that sex is bad. I mean, how could it not be based on what happened to us, Right? And so uh, I hear that. If that's you, I hear that. I understand that. I'm sorry that that happened. That should not be the case. That is not what God intended for you, and God is not okay 
with that. I want you to hear that. I want you to know that. Obviously, sexual abuse is a huge issue that needs to be talked about. It needs to be condemned, right? And yet, I don't think up front in a sermon is the best space to give this topic the attention that it really does need. And so what I want to say is, if you have been abused in some way and you need to talk about it, maybe even for the very first time, would you please come talk to one of us on staff? That's what we're here for. We're ready for it. We're expecting it if it needs to be. Nobody's going to be surprised about it. But just so you know, come and talk if you need to do so. And yet, with that being said, what I want us to hear as well, the abuse of a good gift of God does not mean that we should abandon that gift altogether. We shouldn't abandon that gift because as we just saw, God created sex. It's intrinsically good because God created it to be good. Second thing from, we learn from these verses in Genesis is that sex is pleasurable. Genesis 2, 23, let's go back and look. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What you can't really see in this verse is the, the genre shift in Genesis 2. Everything before that is a narrative. It reads like a story. And then you get to, to verse 23, and it switches to poetry. And, and so that opening statement, this at last, that should have about five or ten exclamation points after because this is capturing Adam's delight at seeing Eve and the delight of engaging in sex with her. See, the Bible's full of frank language about the joy and the delight of sex. It doesn't pull any punches. It might make us blush at points. The Old Testament book of Song of Solomon, the whole book's a love poem between a husband and a wife. And I've never quoted Song of Solomon in a sermon until right now. Let's read it. Chapter 7, verse 6. Here we go. How beautiful you are and how pleasing my love with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples in your mouth, like the best wine. That's not just a metaphor, okay? That's legit. The Bible's not scared to talk about the joy and the desire and the pleasures of sex. That's part of how God made sex. Let's call a spade a spade, right? And so as Christians, we, we don't need to talk about sexual pleasure as something filthy or wrong or dirty because the Bible, it never does. The Bible will make you blush. Final thing we learn from Genesis 2, not the only thing, but the final thing for tonight from Genesis 2 about God's vision of sex. Sex is never casual. A while ago, there was a movie, Vanilla Sky, uh, Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz, they w were in a relationship and they were hooking up without any sort of emotional connection, no big deal, right? But eventually, Cameron Diaz can't take it anymore and she confronts a Tom Cruise and this is what she says. Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? I have no idea if the person who wrote that was a Christian, but gosh, they came really, really, really close. In fact, spot on to the biblical view of sex perfectly. You see, God created us as whole beings. We're physical and mental and emotional and spiritual beings, but they're not into different compartments, right? There's not the physical part of us and the emotional part of us and the spiritual part of us and the mental part of us. God honors our physical bodies. They're not incidental, and they are inseparable from the rest of us. It's like they're welded together. So you can't have the physical and the mental and the spiritual and the emotional. You get them all in one. It's a package deal. 
This is why there's no such thing as casual or meaningless sex because there's nothing casual or meaningless in what we do with our bodies. This is why so many people, the hookup culture thrives on alcohol because you've got to numb what you know to be true. So when it says that Adam and Eve were one flesh, it means that they were united not just physically but mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And then when it says that they were naked and unashamed, it means that they felt free to be vulnerable, free to be known, free to share with one another emotionally and spiritually, not worried about the repercussions, not worried if that information would be used as a weapon uh, to hurt them. The layers were stripped back in their marriage and they were physically, emotionally, and spiritually naked before the other person and zero shame attached to it. How was this vulnerability created? Well, it was created by sex, through sex. Sex is never casual. That's why it's so often so difficult to break up with somebody that you've been hooking up with. It's why it's so hard to stop hooking up once you've started. And it's why we can't keep our emotions from getting involved without drugs or without alcohol to numb them. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you feel that way right now. Sex is a physical, has a physical and soulish power that unites us to a person, and that's the way that God designed it to be. Sex fuels and creates this one flesh connection, this freedom and this vulnerability, this sense of being naked and unashamed. But catch this, this is important. The freedom and vulnerability, the naked and the unashamed, it was meant to be cultivated in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. I know what I just said. I might have just lost some of you. I know it's not popular today. I know it sounds outdated, and it might even be offensive to some in this room. I know a lot of us have friends and family members that might not hold to this. Maybe we don't even hold to this. Why do I say this? Why do I hold, why do we have to hold to this seemingly outdated, seemingly unpopular, seemingly naive view of marriage? Well, here's why. Jesus held to this view. Jesus held to this view. Matthew 19, one of the Gospels, Jesus is talking to his disciples, to the Pharisees, excuse me, and he says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning He's going to quote Genesis 2 here, what we just read. At the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Haven't you read that? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. If God created sex and if God created marriage, and he did, then he gets to define it, not you and me. If God created sex, and if God created marriage, and he did, then it means this is good for us, that it's worth pursuing. See, the vision of sex, it's like a lighthouse in a storm. It's a guide. It tells us where we should and where we were meant to go. Okay, but if the Bible only intends sex and marriage between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, what if you don't want to get married? What if you're sexually attracted to somebody of the same sex? You might be thinking, if that's you, if sex is only meant for marriage between a man and a woman, well, what the heck does this mean for me? Why would I have a desire that does not fit with God's vision? Is he angry with me? Well, the only way for me to be accepted by God to try to change my orientation, to try to stuff it down? What about those of us who have fallen hopelessly short of God's vision for sex? What if you've hooked up with multiple partners 
and you feel like trash. You feel unworthy. You feel tainted. What if you're the one in a relationship pushing the envelope? What if you're the one encouraging or pressuring your boyfriend or girlfriend to go further, to try more and more hooking up? Is there any hope for us? See, the question isn't if we've fallen short of God's standard, God's vision, but it's how far have we fallen. You see, the truth is that all of us are bent sexually. All of us are sexual stumblers. Genesis 3, the next chapter, after Genesis 2, there's the serpent, right? Satan, there he is again. He tempts Adam and Eve. He tempts them to sin against God, and they choose their own way. They say, I want my way, not your way, God. And unfortunately, that choice caused the great rupture that upended all of creation, and we are now downstream from that choice. You know what the first area that was affected? Our sexuality. Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They made coverings for themselves because they were ashamed of their nakedness, ashamed of their sexuality. We can identify with this, yeah? I mean, relationships now, we know they're, they're, they're about trying to cover ourselves up. They're turned against one another. We find ourselves competing one another and using one another in all sorts of ways, especially sexually. See, God's story tells us that we're all bent. We're all sexual stumblers. The only difference is by matter of degree. We're all bent, right? Who hasn't dreamed or fantasized about using our body to impress or manipulate somebody else? Who hasn't cursed God for not giving us the relationship that we've wanted or felt we've deserved? Who hasn't undressed a man or a woman with their eyes and wanted to use them for their own purposes, their own pleasures? You see, we're all sexual stumblers. We're all bent sexually. It's only by matter of degree. So where does that leave us? If we're all sexual stumblers, is it even possible for us to pursue this vision? Great vision, awesome vision. How does that fit with reality? If we're all bent and broken sexually, how could God accept us based on our past mistakes, based on our present mistakes? How could he accept those of us with a sexual orientation or desire that doesn't seem to fit with his vision? I want you to picture this scene with me for a second. I want you to imagine a woman who's dragged before a group of men with stones in their hand. Imagine this woman's thrown in the dirt at their feet. This woman is ashamed. She's tired. She's scared. And she's guilty. She's guilty because she committed adultery. But then out of the corner of the eye, another man steps forward. And this man doesn't have a stone. And the man with a stone looks at this man without a stone and says, Teacher, this woman in the dirt here has been caught in adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? The man with no stone looks at those men with the stones. He looks down at the woman in the dirt, the one that's tired and ashamed and broken and, and, and guilty. And then he bends down and he starts writing in the dirt. It's kind of a tension, a suspense. And then he stands up and he looks those men with the stones in the eye, and he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Silence. And then a sound of a stone dropping, and another stone dropping, and another stone dropping, and another stone dropping. Pretty soon, all that's left is a pile of stones and the footprints of those men because they walked away. Now, I want you to imagine Jesus 
the man with no stone, bending down, looking in the eyes of that filthy woman in the dirt, the one who's ashamed, the one who's broken, the one who's guilty. He looks into her eyes and he asks, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus doesn't condone, condemn the woman for her sexual brokenness and neither does Jesus condemn any single person in this room for our sexual brokenness. Does Jesus want us to pursue his vision of sex? Yes, of course he does. He says so when he tells the woman to leave that life of sin. She was bent, she was broken, she was guilty, she committed adultery, but Jesus didn't condemn her. Jesus removed her shame and restored her dignity. Those men were bent. They were broken. They dropped their stones because they knew they were just as guilty of that sexual sin as the woman in the dirt, but they were hiding it. Jesus let them go. He did not condemn them. You and I are bent. You and I are broken, all of us. But Jesus did not condemn us. Jesus did not condemn you for it. The, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah described 700 years before his birth, he said this about Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus is not in the business of breaking bruised and broken and battered and dirtied and ashamed and guilty people. And nor should we be. We need to drop our stones we need to leave our lives of sin and we need to pursue God's good vision of sex. As the music team comes up, let's just close by asking what this means for us very briefly. You know, I hope you see that we in this room right now and anybody following Jesus, we've got the opportunity to put on display another viable way to live life. We've got the opportunity to show people on our dorms and our fraternities and our sororities, our family members, our coworkers, you don't have to hook up in college. You can live a different way. If you're in a relationship, don't settle for hooking up. Trust in God's timing. Ask Jesus for self-control. And don't forget about those who are single. Find a way to incorporate them into your community. Build friendships. If you're single and you don't want a relationship, don't settle for hookups. Use your singleness to glorify God. Use your relational freedom in ways that honor and serve God. Show others the value that singleness can bring to a Christian community. If you're single and you want a relationship, don't settle for hookups. Trust Jesus with your singleness. He of all people knows what it's like. Think about it. Jesus was a genuine human being. He lived a satisfying and fulfilling life, and he never had sex. Trust in his timing. Trust that even if you never get that relationship, that he's enough. For all of us, let's bear one another's burdens together. Let's bear one another's burdens together. You don't have to hook up in college. You can follow Jesus and pursue his vision for sex. It's not pointless. It's not hopeless. It's a life and a vision worth pursuing. You see, Jesus meets each one of us in the dirt. He doesn't come with condemnation, but with an invitation. And so whoever we are, wherever we find ourselves, whatever our past mistakes, let's affirm Jesus and let's pursue Jesus and his vision of sex for our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. 
If you were encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.